Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 and 19 through 34. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. As I get... Um situated here. I just want to kind of let you know um, just where I'm at. This today is uh, J Jummer Jay, 
his band Kiss the Tiger had their album release party last night at Ice House over on Eighth Street. It was great, and they played from midnight to one in the morning, um, which is hard. You know, the closer you get to 40, like, the harder that is for you, and so I didn't get enough sleep, um, but it's not going to stop me, and, uh, you know, I might be the first pastor to fall asleep during my own sermon, so <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see what happens. Yes, please. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I was just in a meditative place. <laughs> so lost in it. All right, if you've seen the sermon title, you might know where I'm headed a little bit with this, but uh, it's, don't jump to the punchline. Okay, so uh, if you're a subscriber to Netflix, might be aware of an sh- original show that they recently released that's a bit of a smash hit, and, and the show is called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. So please put your hand up if you have watched Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, okay? That's a critical mass. Lots of us have watched Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And, and she was famous before, before the show came out, but I feel like her kind of saturation of the general populace has just exponentially increased with this show as it came out. And, and, and she's famous for her, her method of organization called the Konmar method. And, and, and she is this tiny, I mean, adorable, really polite and, and well put together uh, a Japanese woman. And, and, and my main complaint with the show is that it doesn't focus enough on her. It focuses too much on the, you know, boring people whose house is messy. And it's like, I want more Marie. Like, I want her to be showing me how to fold things and telling me things in, in her nice way. Like, it's just amazing. Uh, whatever it is, Marie has got it. But it's a sensation, it was a, and, and she was a sensation before she even got this show. And so what is it? Why is her method so powerful? Like, what is it that fascinates us so much with the idea of people cleaning up their messes and then maybe the possibility of us cleaning up our own? And just as an aside, like, last night I folded my shirts using the Conmar method. And they fit. You, you check out the drawer when you go home, honey. I seriously did this? Yeah. And they fit so efficiently in the drawer. It's vertical storage, folks. Like, this is a miracle. My stuff is, my life is, I already feel transformed a little bit. <laughs> but her method is, it's really simple. You take all of your stuff, your clothes, your papers, your books, miscellaneous. Komono, that's what she calls miscellaneous. So you take all of your stuff and you put it in one big pile. I mean, for some folks, this is a huge pile. But you put all your stuff in one big pile and you pick up each item and you see, does this spark joy? Or not. And if it sparks joy, you keep it. And if it doesn't spark joy, you get rid of it. And, and that, that's her little catchphrase. Does it spark joy? And it's become this wonderful, you know, cultural meme. And it's a w- fun way to make a joke. Like, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. It doesn't spark joy. Like, I'm not going to do the dishes. That's just not sparking joy for me right now. This sermon sparks joy, though. So <laughs> I'm very excited for that. But, but I think at its core... Why, one of the reasons why this method is so powerful is that it, it forces people to come face to face with their stuff. In many cases, literally a mountain of their stuff. And when you put it all in one big pile, there's no ignoring it, there's no avoiding it, it's just right there. And, and people also then are faced with this very real connection that they have with their stuff and their, and their spirit, what's going on. And how having and storing and living with all of these things has, has become burdensome or oppressive relationship or, or even soul killing. And there's that old saying, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. And, and I think that could be Marie Kondo's motto. And while I don't subscribe to that saying, and maybe it's because I'm not super cleanly, um, 
there is something to it. There's this indelible, undeniable connection between our stuff and our spirituality. And, And to just shift the register on this ever so slightly, there's this indelible connection between generosity and discipleship, between possessions and this question of what possesses us. Are we possessed by, as, as is constantly being presented in the Gospels, unclean spirits is what they're called, or are we possessed by the Holy Spirit? There's way more of a connection between discipleship and stuff than we're comfortable admitting. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, where your stuff is, that's where your heart shall be. And besides the kingdom of God, the thing that Jesus talks about the most in the Gospels is is wealth, is money. And so if we believe that Jesus is who Scripture says he is, that he's both Savior and Lord, the one who rescued us, but then also rules over us, then then we're going to have to listen to him. And so this question we're faced then is this, is where is our treasure? And how does what we make and, and you know, what we own and, and what we spend and what we do with our resources, how does that connect to our Christian faith and our walk with Jesus? You know, it's going to get uncomfortable, but let's just get uncomfortable here. You know, could someone look at your bank statement or your credit card statement? Will there be any evidence there that you're a Christian? And, and I know we all have different resources, so the one resource we all have the same amount of is time, 24 hours in a day. Could someone look at your calendar? And tell. So there's this Conmar method, which says, she says, envision your ideal life. And using my method is going to help you get closer to that by tidying up and seeing what sparks joy. But this morning we're going to study the, wait for it, Con Jesus method. That's what, yeah, hip cultural reference there. <laughs> method, which is not about your ideal life. It's not about your ideal life. No, 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 no. It's about something much better than that. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about righteousness and justice. And it's not about transforming your space. It's about transforming your heart and your life and the world. And more than sparking joy, there is this deep and abiding peace that surpasses all understanding. It's about our, our soul's freedom from the anxiety that comes from serving the wrong master. And so this morning we're going to look at, at Jesus' approach to stuff or wealth through the lens of generosity by asking these three, these three questions. Who is generosity for? What makes generosity so difficult? And, and lastly, how is generosity possible? So first, who is generosity for? And in Matthew chapter 6, so we've been going through Matthew this year and looking at, 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 at the gospel according to Matthew. We're going to be doing that through Easter. And so we've started the Sermon on the Mount. We've started the blessed are those. And then, you know, Jesus said even at the, uh, in the middle of, of chapter 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's no place for you in the kingdom of heaven. And so then he kind of goes on to describe what does this greater righteousness look like? And, and here Jesus talks about you know, kind of this, this kingdom life as it relates to three fundamental expressions of Jewish piety. And we, we only get the one here, but um, almsgiving, prayer, and then fasting. And Jesus says there's a right way to do those things and a wrong way to do them. And, and a wrong way of doing them is born from a person who is practicing their piety and they have the wrong audience in mind. And with religious practices, it's so 
easy to get our audiences mixed up. And so Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Right? It's so easy to fall into that trap of, of doing good things so as to be seen as a good person, to act like a disciple rather than actually living like one. That's especially a danger for uh, religious professionals. People like Matt, people like me, people like Katie, people like Amy, the whole worship band, people who are up in front of others in this, you know, spiritual role. You know, this question that, that, that haunts us is, who are we performing for? Who is our primary audience on Sunday mornings? And when we don't think about it, it's so easy to reflexively fall back into thinking, well, the answer is you guys out there. You're the audience. You know, I preach for you. The band, they play for you. And so uh, the question at the end of the worship service is, well, did you like it? Did I do a good job? You know, did the band play good? Did you like those songs? But that's not what worship is about. Right? Who's the audience for our worship? God. And, and, and the worship leader and, and, and the worship team. Right? They're not leading us in the sense of performing for an audience, but, but, but we're all participants. They're leading us as participants as we collectively praise God together for who God is and what God has done, right? Helping us give voice and word to the amazingness of God's grace that is so wonderful that we just want to tell God thank you. We want to tell other people, just like you do in any other relationship, right? When you value someone and you're grateful towards someone and you love someone, you want to tell them, you want to tell other people. And so the danger is always that instead of becoming disciples, we become actors, performing religious deeds in order to be seen and praised by others, rather than as this, this genuine expression of our faith in and love for Jesus. And the language that Jesus uses at the beginning of the passage when he's warning people about performing for the wrong audience, it, it comes right from the world of the stage the Greek word that Jesus uses in his warning where he says, be careful to not do this, to be seen by other people. That verb for to see, it's the same verb, Greek word, where we get our word for theater. Be careful about performing, he says. And he says, don't, don't sound the trumpet before you when you give like the hypocrites do. And for us, you know, we hear the word hypocrite and we think it's someone acting, performing in a negative way. That the outward, you know, appearance doesn't match the inner reality and motivation. But, but, but in, in ancient Greek, hypocrite, it's just a Greek loan word. It just meant actor, someone who's an actor. And that's not a pejorative term for us if you say, well, that person is a, their profession is they're an actor. But Jesus is saying, be careful about performing your religious tasks, your religious deeds like an actor performing for the wrong audience. If we do these things in order to be seen and praised by other people first, then the only reward we will receive is their praise. Personally, where do I see, you know, Christians kind of play acting the most for other people? I think if you spend any time on sort of Christian Twitter, whatever that is, it's just a lot of performing for other people. Instead, Jesus says, our generosity ought to be for God. He's our audience. That's an expression of our love for him, our gratitude for everything he's done for us. And so when we're answering, we're answering that question, who is our generosity for? It's first and foremost for God, not because God needs it. Of course not. What could we ever give to God that he hasn't already given to us? 
But it's for God because God wants our hearts. And Jesus says, where our treasure is, there our heart is. And so if God doesn't have our treasure, he doesn't have our hearts and he doesn't have us. And secondarily, our generosity is for other people, but not for the people who are watching, but namely for the needy. And this word for needy, it's very closely related to the word for merciful. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Jesus said blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So our generosity is for people who need mercy, who need compassion, who need kindness. That's what our generosity is for, compassion, mercy, justice. We give to God first, and those who need mercy, second. Those most in need of it. And Malcolm Gladwell has this great podcast called Revisionist History, and, and I think it's in the second season he has this episode where he basically takes on wealthy donors and elite schools for hoarding all of this wealth, for kind of asking all of this, you know, generosity to flow to them. And, and he, he talks specifically about places like Harvard and, and Stanford University where, you know, billions of dollars of endowments at these places. And Gladwell asks the president of Stanford, is there ever a point in time where you'd like ask donors to just turn off the spigot? Like we have more money than we know what to do with. Like can creating an elite program for a hundred people around the world, is that really the best use of a billion dollars? Like maybe admitting 10,000 more students would be a better use of that or giving it to another school who could start that. You know, would you ever just say like, thanks, we have enough? And the guy was very honest. He said, no, like we will always take more money. And Jesus is saying, when you're thinking about generosity, don't think in terms of that kind of prestige giving. But, but, but focus generosity on who needs it, who needs mercy the most. And so our generosity is for God first, uh, the needy second, and lastly, and we can just own this, it's also for ourselves. When we become generous, it does something for us. It changes us. Jesus says we get a reward from our Father in heaven. And this cuts against kind of what we think altruism is supposed to be. You know, that really a good deed can only be good or generosity can only be generosity if it's totally selfless. Like we get no benefit from it at all. Otherwise, it's tainted somehow. There was an episode of Friends where Joey and Phoebe get in this argument over whether or not there's such thing as a truly selfless good deed. And Joey says, selfless good deeds don't exist. And Phoebe says, well, yes, they do. And she tries to prove him wrong. And she almost does, but isn't able to. But God, it doesn't seem is too terribly concerned that a truly good deed be totally selfless. You know, who cares? As long as we get the order right, that, that our generosity is for God and for the needy, and then us, there's nothing wrong with a little reward. It's, it's unavoidable. There's this phrase I learned from a, a this wonderful little book on biblical stewardship called Ask, Thank, Tell. And it's this, that, that generosity is about the giver's need to give, not the church's need to receive. And so we're not in the business here at Res of making customers for the religious goods and services that we produce or provide. That would be getting our audience wrong, our understanding of the nature of our collective enterprise and relationship wrong. We're about making disciples for the kingdom, and that's why generosity is so important for us. Because without helping people discover what it means for them to be truly generous, we will have failed in our mission to make and grow disciples who make disciples. So that's who generosity is for. 
You know, it seems so straightforward, so simple. Of course, we can all nod our heads, go, yep, God, the needy, mature ourselves. But then why is it so hard? Why doesn't it come easily? What keeps us from being generous? And Jesus, he spends a lot of his teaching on talking about why it's so difficult. He, he compares money to another master besides God that we attempt to serve. And he says, no slave can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And the older translations say you can't serve both God and mammon. And, and, and mammon is this Aramaic word, and originally it meant a possession that you entrusted to someone else. But over time, its meaning had morphed and twisted to not something you entrusted to someone else, but an object in which, or possessions in the abstract, in which you place your total trust and faith. Almost like a, a quasi-divine figure or, or God, you know, the almighty dollar, we might say. You can't serve both God and money. And so why is money and stuff and wealth so dangerous? And when we say that Jesus, besides the kingdom of God, teaches the most about money, when Jesus teaches about money, the main thing he does is warn people about it. He says it's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because it becomes mammon. It becomes this God-like power over us. It becomes an idol, something that controls us and enslaves us. But why is it so apt to become an idol? And then Jesus talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of, of, of the field. And, and, and what he's getting at is that it, it's so apt to become an idol because it addresses our deep anxiety and insecurity about the future. That's what Jesus is talking about with these birds and these flowers and our worry. Money is such a powerful idol because, you know, we believe that we can trust it to mitigate against the uncertainties of the future. And the future is a dangerous place. It's a scary place because the future is off the map. You know, there be monsters when you look out at the future. The best thing I've ever read about kind of the power of the future, this kind of diabolical power that the future can have over us, comes from C.S. Lewis's little book, The Screwtape Letters. And we, we read it last year in Life Group, and it's just full of all these gems, like really wonderful gems. But, um, and, and if you're not familiar with Screwtape Letters, what's happening is it's Lewis's imagination of um, this Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood. They are demons trying to convert the patient, or who is this person who's recently become a Christian. They're trying to lure him from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of darkness. Um, and so it can be a little confusing, because when Screwtape is talking about the enemy, he's talking about God. And he says, our father below. You know, so that's the, uh, that's the, the setup. But Screwtape says this about the future. He says, the humans live in time, but our enemy, God, destines them to eternity. God, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present right now. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it, only humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy... God, has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, 
either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, the encouragement we have given to all those schemes of thought, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affections on the future, on the very core of temporality. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past, and love to the present. Fear, avarice, Lust and ambition look ahead to the future. What keeps us from being truly generous is, is this uncertainty about the future, which betrays deep down this lack of faith. Jesus says, oh, you, oh, ye of little faith. This lack of faith that God could really be that good or that generous or that caring or that gracious. Idols are always man-made substitutes for true faith. Idolatry is born from faith that loses its nerve. And when we turn from God and, and, and turn to idols, it's like turning away from the light and towards the darkness, and so it skews our vision, and that's what Jesus is getting in that, in that kind of confusing section about uh, your eye and sight and light and the body. But Eugene Peterson in the message, he paraphrases it so wonderfully. He says, your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body fills up with darkness. It's like a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. So we've seen who generosity is for, and we've seen why it's so difficult. But the last question then, and the most important question of all, is how is generosity then even possible? How can we be the kind of people who, who don't worry about what kind of clothes we wear or food we will eat, but embrace this radical freedom that Jesus is offering that comes from living in the present moment for God, for his people, and his purposes? And the answer that Jesus gives is to look around with your eyes wide in wonder and belief. Consider, Jesus says, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Generosity comes from a proper theology of creation that sees the world while it is admittedly damaged by sin. It is still infused with the glory and the grandeur and the goodness of God. Is God generous? Is God gracious? Is God loving? Does God care about creation and His creatures? If despite all evidence to the contrary, He really does, then we're freed from this mentality of scarcity to, to live from a place of true abundance and freedom. When we live from this place of scarcity, we, we, we hoard. 
we hold on to. We're parsimonious, stingy, selfish, greedy, shut people out, you know, keep long accounts of who owes us what. But when we live from a place of abundance, we give freely, we share, we invite people in, we open our hearts and our homes, we, we forgive, and, and sometimes even we forget. Living from a place of abundance, it, it transforms us from the inside out. And generosity is, of course, possible because of God's limitless generosity in creation and redemption. The great preacher Tom Long said, we float in an ocean of God's generosity. I love that image. All that we have, all that we are, comes by the mercy of God so that when we're generous towards others, we are not writing checks on a limited account. Can't overdraw that account. We are drawing from an inexhaustible flow of divine grace. Works of mercy never deplete the supply. And of course, Jesus himself is the perfect example of God's infinite generosity. St. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Brothers and sisters, we are richly blessed in order to be a blessing. And so might we believe that, practice that, and live that so that other people will know the radical freedom that comes from the richness of life in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.